0: I invite you to open your Bible this morning to Revelation chapter 13, where we really pick up where we left off last Lord's Day. Again, we were looking at the same thing we've been looking at in the book of Revelation, but from a different perspective. In chapters 1 through 11, the Focus has been from an earthly perspective. And from time to time, the author would give us a glimpse up into heaven, but by and large, it's focused upon the here and the now. But in chapter 12, going forward, the focus is on everything that's been going on down here in chapters 1 through 11, but just let's consider it from heaven's perspective. What's going on behind the scenes, the root cause of, of the things that we're experiencing? And, and, and a lot of it is, as we saw last week, this battle going on between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. We were introduced to that battle all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, right when the serpent entered into the Garden of Eden and tempted Eve. And there created a tension, a war, a battle between Christ and his enemy. And that imagery is picked up here in chapter 12. Now that serpent is a dragon. He's just grown to maturity through the unfolding of biblical revelation. Same picture, he's just the same serpent, he's a dragon now. And the child that's spoken of here is Christ. So we have a dragon, that is Satan, that's identified for us in Revelation chapter 12. The child is the Messiah, the one who is prophesied to come. And in chapter 12, we saw a series of visions where first the dragon was doing everything in his power to kill the child. Right? We had that gruesome image of a pregnant woman in the pangs of birth. She's having contractions, the child is about to come up, and the dragon is positioned fangs wide open at the womb, ready to devour the child the moment it comes forth. But what happens? The child is born and is ascended to the right hand of the Father. Now, again, that's just apocalyptic language of saying that that encapsulates the child was born. He grew in the stature and wisdom with men and God. He lived. He died on the cross. He rose again and was ascended to the right hand of the Father on high. That child accomplished everything that he was prophesied to do. But John, in apocalyptic language, just kind of shortens it and says he he was preserved, he accomplished what was needed, and was taken to the right hand of the Father. So the dragon immediately in chapter 12 failed to accomplish what he set out to do to destroy the child who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we saw a second vision in chapter 12 where the the battle rages between uh, Michael, the archangel, and and the angels and the heavenly host against Satan and against his demonic forces, and they're thrown out of heaven, right? They're they're thrown out. Just as Adam and Eve were thrown out of the Garden of Eden, so too Satan and his his, uh, evil forces were thrown out of heaven. They no longer have access to it. They were thrown down to earth, where now is where they continue their tyrant uh, in the time between the resurrection of Christ and his return. And then we saw a third vision in chapter 12, where the dragon... He could not get the child, right? The child was taken to the right hand of the father, Christ. He's there now. He rules and reigns. And the dragon is a defeated foe, but he's enraged. In that final vision we saw, he now turns his fury against the woman who is the church. The church of Jesus Christ and the time between the ascension of Christ and his return. All of his fury is against the church. He's trying to destroy her. Remember, he opens his mouth and a flood of waters comes out. He's trying to destroy the church, the people of God, the people who give their allegiance to Christ, the one that he hates. And then we're told that God opens up the earth and it it swallows up the water. So it does not accomplish what the dragon intended it to be. Again, metaphorical language. But the picture here is of a dragon who's, he's defeated. He knows his time is short. We're going to see that here in chapter 13. But in the time that he has, is going to do everything possible out of his hatred for that child, for Christ, for the kingship of Christ. Is going to do everything in his power to turn the world away from Christ. To turn even his people away from him. And that's what chapter 13 is about. And chapter 12 closes with the dragon. He made his attempt. He failed. So in chapter 13, he enlists the help of two other agents, we'll call them. Two other agents that are intended that he uses to try to turn hearts away from the sufficiency, the beauty, the majesty of Christ. We're going to look at the first today and, God willing, the second Next Lord's Day. Let's look together at our text. Revelation, I'm going to begin reading in chapter 12, verse 17, and then we'll read through chapter 13, verse 10. Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. This is right after the dragon failed in his attempt to destroy the church. Verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. That's where we are today. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Chapter 13. This is where he brings in his agents for help. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months." It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling that is those who dwell in heaven. And also was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life. Of the lamb that was slain. Oh if anyone has an ear to hear. Let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive. To captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword. With the sword must he be slain. Here is a call. For the endurance. And the faith of the saints. Let me pray. Father in heaven we do come to you once again. This is your word. Lord, and you have communicated to us in vivid language here that if we're honest, confuses us. And Lord, there are no shortage of of answers as to what what is this all about. But Father, we don't want any old thing. We want what do you intend? What are you telling us? What are you warning us? You, You tell your church, you tell us this morning, if we have ears to hear, hear who this beast is Hear what he's doing. Here, take notice of his tactics, of how he's turning hearts away from the sufficiency of Jesus. And so, Father, we pray this morning that our agenda will not be to hold fast to whatever our convictions are about what chapter 13 is about, but our heart will be, Father, show us. Show us where maybe even we are being turned away from Christ, to trust in something else, That this day we may repent and this day we may return and turn all of our hopes, all of our dreams, all of our aspirations to Jesus Christ. It is in Christ's name and for his glory we pray and ask these things. Amen. So we've made our way now into chapter 13 and again I just use this as as a disclaimer before we get going into it. The book of Revelation is about Christ. We're entering into now all these vicious beasts, and, and, and the one next week is, 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 I think, even more dangerous than this one. But we cannot get sidetracked. Satan, the great dragon, would love for us to t- completely miss the point of this. Christ here is warning us about the dragon and about his tactics, and he, he wants us to be confused about this thing. He doesn't want us to see this. We must keep in mind John's purpose in writing this is to show us Christ, to turn our hearts to Christ, uh, to expose some real temptation, some real agent of Satan in the world today that's turning hearts away from Christ that we may repent and return to our king. That is our agenda. The whole book is all uh, the Bible has been about Christ. Going all the way back to the Old Testament, we see Christ in those prophecies written Thousands of years before Christ was born. Genesis, written approximately 2,000 years before He was about Jesus. We can go back and read the old songs in the Psalms, written some 800 years before Jesus. Who are they about? They're about Jesus. We can see foreshadowings of who Jesus is and what he's going to do in every Old Testament story. The story of David and Goliath, it's about Jesus. Noah's Ark, it's about Jesus. Uh, The the taking of uh, Jericho, it's about Jesus. The whole book has been about Jesus. And it makes complete sense to us when we get to the Gospels where Jesus is born and he lives and he dies and he's resurrected from the dead and he raises again. But the Gospels are about Jesus. The book of Acts is about Jesus on display and how he's working from heaven. The epistles are about the, the workings of Jesus on the earth and the book of Revelation. Is about Jesus as well. But it gives us a unique picture of Jesus. Unlike any of us come before it, this is Jesus enthroned. Jesus on his throne, resurrected, ascended to his father's right hand, sitting in beauty, sitting in majesty, sitting in sufficiency, sitting in sovereignty over all the horrors of life down in this, this world that we live in today. And obviously we need this vision of Jesus. Otherwise the book of Revelation would have never been. We need this vision of Jesus. We need it today. We'll need it tomorrow. We need it every single day of our lives because where did we leave off last week in chapter 12? The dragon, Satan. He's still alive. He's still around. The earth is his playground. And he's enraged against Christ, and against Christ's church, against you and I. And whether you've acknowledged it or not, you have felt that this week. Now, whether you've put up much of a fight, that's between you and the Lord. But Satan has been at work in this world, and he's enraged. And this morning, by grace, in kindness, God says, Church, sovereignly, from his throne. I'm in control of everything. But let me expose what the dragon, who he has enlisted in his service to try to turn you away from me. This is a kindness of our king to show us this, these two agents, the first of which we look at this morning. At the close of chapter 12, the dragon is frustrated. Satan is frustrated. It says he's on the sand of the sea. He's straddling land and water. This is his playground. That he's the ruler of this world. And from that position, he calls on two beasts to help him in his all-out war against the church. All right, We're we're, we're clear on the connection between chapter 12 and 13. Chapter 12, he failed. Chapter 13, he's not giving up. He's just bringing in the forces to help. What does he bring in? Well, the first, verse 1. I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous, blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. So, this first beast, the dragon calls him out, and it's a, he's terrible in appearance. I mean, this is horrific, what this beast looks like. We're not going to take time to do it this morning. It looks an awful lot like the dragon in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. You'll go back and look. There's a lot of similarities there. It has seven heads, ten horns, diadems or crowns on its head. That was very similar to the description of the dragon in chapter 12. And its body is made up of various animal parts, a collection of them, bear, leopard, lion. But what is it? We're far enough into Revelation now, we understand apocalyptic language. We're not looking for a literal seven-headed beast that looks like this to come out. What does he represent? Well, there's a couple clues in the text. We want to be biblical about this. First, the fact that the first clue is that he's rising out of the sea. Our first clue in understanding this is that the dragon, Satan, calls this beast out of the sea. And we'll contrast that next week in verse 11... The next one's coming out of the land. So this is significant, the fact this is coming out of the sea. Why? Because in the ancient world, back in, in, the, in, in the old days, the sea was frightening. And I was thinking about this this week, because we've referenced this before in Revelation. And I go to the ocean all the time. I mean, wh- or the lake I mean, wh- why were they so scared of the sea? And it dawned on me. What if you've never seen a satellite picture of, of the earth? And what if you've never seen the fact that you stand, you see these raging waters and it goes out and you have no idea. If you have no idea the contour of the earth and the depth of the waters, and if you've not at a scientific age to know what's in those waters, those waters all of a sudden become a very frightening place, a mysterious place. And that's the way it was. The the waters were a place of storm and tempest, a frightening place. And without exception, in the Old Testament, anytime we see one coming out of the water, out of the sea, without exception, it's used to represent evil kingdoms that are at enmity with God, without exception. Anytime in the Old Testament we see the imagery of one coming out of the water, an, a sea monster coming out of the water, or anything coming out of the water, it's used to represent evil kingdoms against God who persecute God's people. So, the waters are symbolic of the dwelling place of evil, of the kind of evil that persecutes God's people. And that's perfectly in line with what the dragon is intending to do, right? Right? He's a defeated foe, but he's going out in an all-out attack. And so out of these waters, he calls out this beast. I would reference you to Revelation chapter 17, verse 15, I think. There, The prostitute, Babylon, is on the waters, and there we're told that the waters represent people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Unconverted, evil, the ungodly. So, I mean, that factors into... These waters here are those at enmity with God. I think it's clear here, this is not a seven-headed beast that's coming up to gobble up Christians. But what we have here is an agent of evil. A second clue is in the description of who this beast is. John's first century readers would have instantly known what we don't pick up on. I've had comments with some of you in the past. That, how, did these, how in the world were these first century Christians supposed to pick up on these things? Uh, here we are. We, we have a, they knew their Bibles in a way that we don't. They would have known instantly here the description of this beast is very similar to Daniel's description of four beasts in chapter 7. If you remember in Daniel chapter 7, the prophet has a vision. Four great beasts come up out of the sea. And these are four distinct beasts, and they're different from one another. One was like a lion, one's like a bear, one's like a leopard, and then one is is a fourth beast just described as being terrifying, powerful, dreadful, exceedingly strong. But Daniel's vision was meant to reveal what? He identifies it for us there. Other kingdoms, other empires that would arise and at war with the people of God. They're in the text, Daniel 7. They're identified. These four kingdoms are the Babylonian kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom, the Greek empire under Alexander the Great, and the Roman empire. That's what those four beasts were representing. These four empires soon to come that are going to be at enmity with the people of God. So what Daniel mapped out in Daniel 7 is that the people of God are going to be in conflict with the world. Satan is going to continue his assault on the people of God, even in the Old Testament, and he's using these nations to do so, portrayed in the image of these four beasts. What John does here in chapter 13 is he comes in, and what he does is he brings these visions together into one. He reworks, if you will, that vision of nations at war against the people of God, and he puts them together into one Super beast, if you will. And Daniel was four beasts, and this one had come together into one super beast. One super ongoing threat that doesn't end with this nation, and then it's over, but it's an ongoing threat. What John is doing here, he's very much summarizing Daniel's vision of the world against Christ, the world against Christ's church. Everything we've seen Seed of the woman versus seed of the serpent. I mean, that just makes sense. John is summarizing. So, what then does he represent? Answer: It represents the persecuting power of political forces, of other empires, of other kingdoms, of other nations throughout the earth, who are at war with Christ and His Church throughout the ages. Same thing it meant in Daniel's vision, just on a larger scale now in the time between Christ's ascension and his return. One of Satan's primary agents to turn hearts away from the sufficiency of Christ are the persecuting powers of other nations, of other countries, of other governments, of other political powers, forces on earth, persecuting the church. So, the beast that we see here is, can I use the word transcultural? It's, it's, it's transtemporal. It's, it's, it encompasses any and every empire, any and every nation, any and every political power that denies God's kingship, right? We talked about it in, in our catechism question. We were created in the image of God. Why? Because He's the king. And we are made in his image to glorify him, to turn the world to him. But the world doesn't want him. It goes back to Adam and Eve. They don't want a king. Because when you have a king, what? you got to do what the king tells you to do. You're not your own. But the world wants what they want. And that's what's represented here in this dragon. So, in this period of time between the ascension of Christ and his return, world powers, all right, it includes the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Roman Empire. It includes even modern day world powers. But world powers in all places and in all times will labor to pressure Christians to compromise. And whose hand does that play into? The dragon's. What is the dragon dead set to do? Verse 17 of chapter 12. The dragon became furious with the woman, furious with the church, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Those who are committed to Jesus Christ and his lordship. Satan is now calling on agents in the world to come and put pressure on the church to turn away from Christ. And he's subtle. He's subtle. We'll talk about that in just a minute. This is one beast. Don't take that to mean that it's going to be one empire. Empires rise and fall, right? The things that the four beasts represented in Daniel's day, they came onto the scene, they did their thing, and then they they fell. And then it's on to something else. This beast symbolizes, remember the... The, seven, the, the horns, the, the, the uh, symbol of fullness, every empire in every age that is against God. So the evil spirit that dominated the Roman Empire in, in John's day, remember John's on the island of Patmos, he would not submit to the Roman Empire, that same spirit that is going on in the first century with those seven churches is now still at work in the world today. The Roman Empire fell centuries ago but the spirit of the roman empire is still alive and well in other nations It's exactly what we see in the old testament right you see opposition to the people of god in sodom and then sodom gets overturned is that the end of the story no then there's egypt and 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 they're in captivity for 400 years but god brings them out is that the end of the story they win no then there's another group that comes up. Then, then you got the Assyrians. Once they defeat the Assyrians, is that no? Then you got the Babylonians. Well, is that it? Is that the end of it? No. Then you got the Persians, and you got the Greeks. You got the Roman Empire. Well, did they die out with the Roman Empire? Absolutely not. We still live in a world today. In in modern kingdoms, the spirit of the Antichrist, the spirit of The dragon is still at work in the world today in world powers in China, Russia, in North Korea, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and the United States. Sometimes this persecution will be mild. Sometimes it will be unto martyrdom. But the point here in this beast is that the dragon... The enemy of Christ has chosen to use world powers as his agent. Out of the the sea, enmity with God. They don't want his kingship. They're already on his team using these as his form to attack the church, to bring the church to compromise. Now, having identified what this beast is, again, let's remember the purpose. It is to turn us away from Christ. The dragon is determined to do everything possible. He can't defeat Christ. He lost that battle, right? He had fangs wide open. He was going to devour him. At the cross, man, he had teeth clenched. And at the resurrection, boom, he comes out, breaks the jaws of the the dragon. He's taken to the right hand of the Father. He's lost that battle. But he is sure determined to do everything in his power to divert that child's people to divert their allegiance away from Christ. Can I commend to you? He does a great job. Not just out there. Do you not feel the tension in your own soul this morning? Has there not been compromise in your heart in any degree? Would you own up to that this very week? This is the reality that in kindness, God says, dear children, I'm sovereign on my throne. He's a defeated foe. He's playing right into my hands. But he's still at work. And I want you to know his tactics. Why? Because there is no excuse. There is no excuse to say, well, the devil made me do it. And he uses political authority to attack the Christian church. And notice how he does this. This is sinister. Nothing short of sinister. We read, and one of his heads, let me turn to the right chapter. We read in verse 3, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound Was healed. Who's that a parody of? Someone who received a mortal wound. What's a mortal wound? It means you're dying. Mortal wounds you don't recover from. But here he was healed from a mortal wound. Who is that a picture of? Christ. Here we have this agent of the dragon. How is he accomplishing what he's doing? Pretty much by mimicking Christ to the world. Turn away from this king. Here's a better king. Here's a king who's equal to this one. Yeah, he died. He rose from the dead. That's awesome. Look right here. These forces of political power do the same thing. He's usurping Christ's power, Christ's authority to turn hearts away from Christ. What's he talking about? Keep in mind, he's not talking about a real person here. He's not talking about a literal person who dies and then comes back to life. He's talking about political powers throughout the ages. It's just what we were talking about. They receive a mortal wound, but they come back. Whenever a major opponent to God, I'm thinking politically, whenever an opponent to God dies, don't we take a breath of fresh air and say, man, finally. Except what? comes another one here comes another nation here comes another country the beast will rise up again in another form another political government another agency he will continue to resurrect in every generation it's exactly what i said a minute ago sodom gave way to what egypt There's a resurrection. Egypt gave way to what? To the Philistines. The Philistines, once they died out, is that the end of it? No. Here come the Assyrians. Here come the Babylonians. Here come the uh, the Medo-Persians. Here come the Romans. You see, there's a once one dies out, it's not over. There's a resurrection, if you will. It keeps coming. In the Old Testament, those political forces of evil were never completely eradicated. And that's the image here in verse 3. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. It came back. It came back. It's kind of a false resurrection, a counterfeit resurrection. And the fact that this enemy of Christ keeps coming back, does that not speak to... It's powerful. Does that not speak to the fact that Wait a minute. I thought Christ defeated his enemies. And yet it keeps coming back. And it keeps coming back. And it keeps coming back. Maybe the victory of Christ was not as decisive as the king claims that it was. Maybe this beast who looks a lot like Christ in his power and his resurrection, maybe he's superior to this king. And that's what we see. Verse 3 says, And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. They were marveled at the dragon, marveled at the beast, because it doesn't go away. And it does turn people away from Christ. The ultimate intent of the dragon and the beast, let's remember, it's not political power. Political power here is an agent. He's calling it up out of the sea, representative of evil, anti-God. It's an agent for a greater purpose. What is the purpose? The purpose of the dragon is to divert people away from Christ, to divert our loyalty away from Christ, to cause us to compromise. We say we love Jesus. He hates Jesus. Anything he can do to to prove that our love for Jesus is nothing more than lip service. That's what he's about. He wants to turn our Sunday morning worship into Sunday afternoon through Saturday night, living unto another king. That's his purpose. And look at verses 4 through 6. And they worshiped the dragon. For he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? Let me pause there. You've got to hear an echo there. You've got to hear an echo. That's the very same thing the people of God would say about God. Who is like our God? Who is like our God among the nations? Who is like our God, infinite in power and glory? They are using the exact words that God's people claim to use toward God here for these political powers, these forces of evil in the world. It's a satanic parody, if you will. A blasphemy of God. Verse 5, And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Again, now this is about the fifth time we've come upon that 42 months. 42 months, uh, three and a half years, 1,200. They're all the same, symbolic of this period of time. It just simply means it's limited. The time between the uh, ascension and the time of his return, right now, man, this is real, but it won't be real forever. It's limited. And we see that there. It opens its mouth, verse 6, to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. That's what this agent of the dragon does day in and day out. Utters blasphemies against God. He is not enough. Christ is not enough. Christ is not sufficient. You need something else. And this is, this is so subtle. Nowhere does he say to the church, forsake Christ and turn entirely to this if he can simply get us in the small areas of our lives to turn away from our faith in the king and his sufficiency and his sovereignty, in that moment, our loyalty is not to the king. It's what Jesus said. You cannot serve two masters, both me and manna, me and the world, me and money. You can't do it. It's either all of me or nothing. If, he, if the, uh, the dragon can get us to turn in the smallest area of our life, he can claim and rightfully claim we don't believe who Christ is. Do you see that? Do you feel that? Don't be like we talked about this morning when it comes to our sin, those who deny it or redirect it or put blame somewhere else. Do you feel the gravity? If in some area of your life you're trusting in something plus Christ, something other than Christ, your loyalty is not to Christ. So, what does this even look like to us? We can talk about what it represents. We can talk about what it's doing. We can talk about his agenda to turn our loyalties away from Christ. What in the world would this look like today? That political powers are Satan's agent to turn our hearts against the Lord. Now, let me preface this. This is not a political sermon. All I'm drawing attention to is politics as an agent of Satan. I'm about to make some blanket statements, and there are always exceptions to them. Please don't hear me trying to um, be critical of every politician, all right? That's not what this is about. What this is about is have we placed our trust off of Christ onto something else? Let me begin by saying it really does not matter what political party you belong to. It does not matter the entire political system. I'm speaking in America. I'm speaking of elsewhere, but I'm thinking of what applies to us. The entire political system is in this category of Revelation chapter 13. I'm not suggesting every politician is unconverted. I'm not saying that every politician is an agent of Satan directly. I'm simply saying, in general, the political institution has become an idol. Let me play this out. We elect people to positions of great power, great influence, great wealth. And those who run for those positions, they desire it. I'm not speaking to their motives. I'm not speaking about I'm just simply saying there is great influence in these positions. And when these people run, they run campaigns on certain platforms. Hear me out. This is what it looks like. Elect me, and I will fix your life. Elect me, I've got the plan that's going to fix you. Your family's struggling financially. Society, look around, it's not what it needs to be. There's, a, there's, a, there's social problems that need to be addressed. I'm the candidate to fix these things. We have all kinds of dangers around us. I'm the candidate who's going to work towards protecting your family. Health care, I'm going to make you healthy. Retirement, I'm going to make sure you're taken care of. Do you hear the promises that are made? Do they resonate? We hear them. We're kind of in a political season right now. Those are claims only God can make. I'm going to fix you. I'm going to fix your finances. Your society at whole, the, the problems in society. Your family, your health, retiring with dignity. Those are promises only God, only God can make and keep. And when these officials come to power, they say, trust me, I'm going to fix your life. I'm going to do for you what you can't do yourself. Now I'm making broad generalities, but let me pause there. Just something unsettled about that. It should. This is where Satan is very subtle. All right, he's in the first century. Satan was um, more more out in the open. What do I mean by that? Domitian, who was the Roman emperor around the year eighty, uh, probably the emperor when John is writing this. Domitian actually put into law an edict that said, you will now refer to me as my Lord and my God, Domitian. That was a law. That was a title reserved only for our king, Jesus Christ. And here you have this political leader who's turning allegiances away from Christ saying, you will call me my Lord, my God, Domitian. All right, that's pretty... um, obvious right there. If a politician today said, I want you to elect me, I want you to call me your Lord, your God, president so-and-so, your Lord, your God, senator so-and-so, your Lord, your God, congressman so-and-so, even we would be like, "Uh uh-uh, even if it's our own political affiliation. Satan has to be more subtle than that. So we don't have presidents or senators or congressmen, Yet, who come out saying things like that. I want you to call me God. What they do is subtly take the role of God. I will fix your problems. I will fix your life. If you elect me and do what I say, your life will be better for it. And we've got to hear these are claims of deity. Those are claims only God can make. this is where I submit to you that the dragon's agent here of political power, political influence, is successfully drawing hearts away from the sufficiency of Christ. If things are not well in your life now under King Jesus, I'll fix it. I'll fix it and our loyalties begin to turn toward our elected officials. Now, let me, let me try to play that out. One writer tells us, one of the signs that an object is functioning as an idol, how do I know if maybe political leaders, my political party, my, how would I know if that's becoming an idol to me? How do I know if it's turning me away from the sufficiency of Christ, to now trust in something else. I'm not forsaking Christ altogether, but I'm putting my hope for my finances, my family, this, that, and the other, my protection in this. How would I know if I'm doing so? One of the signs that an object is functioning as an idol is that fear becomes one of the chief characteristics of life. When we center our lives on the idol, we become dependent upon it. And then if our counterfeit God is threatened in any way, We panic. We don't say, oh, what a shame. Rather, we say, all is lost, there is no hope. Could that be a reason why, even among professing Christians, when someone gets elected to office that's not who they voted for, we hear things like, that's it, I'm moving out of the country. Now, that's an extreme. I've yet to see anybody who's done that. I'm simply using that as, do you see how fear rises up? I've got to abandon ship. I've got to get My hope was in this person getting into office. This person got in inside. My hope is dashed. I need to go find hope somewhere else. Do you you see that connection? Do you see how fear exposes, my hope was in something other than Christ? Uh, Another sign that our Idolatry in government is that anyone who disagrees with my political perspective is just evil. (laughs) It's just evil. It used to be, and I've heard my mom make this comment and my dad, I mean, that in days gone by, when an official was elected, let's just say president, even if it wasn't who you voted for, That was your president. Uh, Now that's not the case so much. Now there are a number who want to demonize whoever they didn't vote for. And again, I'm not trying to get political. All I'm simply exposing is why would we do that except our hope. We created an idol out of this person, and we've got this person, and now our hopes are dashed. And meanwhile, we might want to say, oh, he's gotten political. He's up here talking politics. No, 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 no. No, Jesus is talking politics here. Jesus says, understand. I have established politics, Romans chapters 12, 13. I've established governments for a purpose. But it's not for you to make it a God and put all of your hopes in it. I want you to be a good citizen. I want you to be a good servant. I want you to be a good neighbor under the confines. But never, ever put your hopes in government. Your hope is in Christ. But is not Satan so subtly, absolutely Turning hearts away from the king because our hope is in what the political agenda can do for me. Well, the message of Revelation has been your hope is in the one who's enthroned on high, who's sovereign over it, whose kingdom is what? Not of this world. And that's where the problem lies. The whole purpose of this vision of Christ enthroned is exactly what Paul tells us. Set your sight on things above where Christ is. That is your home. That is your kingdom. Not this earth down here. But the temptation is to flip that, right? And we make this our all-encompassing passion and desire. And this our finances, our health, our wealth, our health care. And I need politicians to fix this down here. Why does John bring this up? To kind of stir the pot politically this morning? No. To expose how Satan is subtly using this agent out of the sea to turn hearts away from Christ, trusting in him sufficiently for everything. And to show that Christ is victorious. Christ is on his throne. And yes, down here, there is persecution, tribulation, affliction, hardship. But keep your eyes glued above where Christ is. Because that's where His kingdom is. That's what His kingdom is. It's Christ. It's His rule, His reign, His lordship over all things. And John explains, I'll have to be very quick here, in verse 7. It, verse 7, also it. What's it? It's the beast. It is this... um, Political enterprise, turning hearts So It was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. You can fight against it all you want. Christ is sovereign over it. He has his purposes for that, right? Remember the prayers of the martyrs in chapter six or seven? How long, O Lord, till you come and bring justice? Not yet. I got more who need to die. I'm at work in this. Likewise here. It may be that... These agents of Satan steamroll in the providence of God, his people. But keep in mind this. Look at verse 7. It, what's the it there? The beast was allowed to make war. Don't miss that. Was allowed to make war. Keep going. Was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it. (laughs) That is very subtly our king saying The beast, these political powers, persecution, the pressure they can put on you to compromise and to turn away from Christ, it's powerful. And if you don't live up to it, maybe they persecute you under martyrdom. But understand, everything they do is only by divine permission. What power and what they do is given to them. It's not their own. Their activities are limited for the 42 months. They will come to an end. Verse 8, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. It what? The beast. That's an audacious thing. Everyone on earth will worship it. Keep going. That is, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. We're going to talk more about that book next week. I don't think it's a literal book. But it's very clear. Those whose names are not sealed by the blood of Christ and in that book, which was written before the foundation of the world. All these movies we've seen of somebody repenting and all of a sudden their name appears. It don't happen that way. That book was written before the foundation of the world. And those who are sealed by the blood, those won't worship the beast. They won't compromise. They will cling to Christ because they're sealed by grace. By the blood of Jesus Christ. And they may fall, but they'll repent and return. There is no neutrality when it comes to the kingship of Jesus. These areas in our lives where maybe we've compromised this week, we've put our trust in, just in keeping with the context, world powers, government, authorities, political influence. That is a compromise from our hope in Jesus. And there is no neutrality that the Holy Spirit would expose that, that we might repent and return to our king. Repentance is person-oriented. Return to our king. And he says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. This is important. This is a tactic of the dragon, of Satan. And it's subtle. I fall prey to it every day. You do as well as a constant temptation. But our hope this morning is revealed not to be in our president, our Congress, our Senate, the world. Our hope is in Jesus Christ, in his blood. It goes back to what we saw in chapter 12, verse 11. They have conquered him. That's the dragon, but it applies to the beast. They have conquered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Christ is an anchor for our souls. Though Satan is constantly bringing temptations and trials and afflictions past us that are Tempting us to turn away from Christ. That Christ is not enough. And man, we are going to see, I think, something even more subtle than this next week. I think the greatest danger to the church is still to come in what we see next week. But even in this, all these things are constantly turning our hearts away from Christ. We need to set our anchor Into Christ, and that's what he says, that's how you conquer, into Christ. Hebrews chapter 6, we have this, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone. We do have an anchor. It may feel like, man, you're asking us to do the impossible, Maybe I've hoped in politics my whole life. You're asking me to to forsake that and put my trust in Jesus Christ, to put my hope in that kingdom, not this kingdom. Well, turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus, repent, and ask him to see life and to see him as he is. He is an anchor for our soul. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying he's enough. And that's what revelation is all about. Christ is Enough.